Welcome to Acres of Insight by Advanced Agrolytics. Hey, welcome in to another episode of our podcast here, Acres of Insight, presented by Advanced Agrolytics. We're excited you're joining us. Today, we're going to talk about a little bit more of some of our foundational pillars at Advanced Agrolytics, how we describe our methodology and how we look at environments differently. So today we're going to talk about why environments matter. And we're going to break down that word environment a little bit more for you. But if you visited with us, uh, one of our agronomists or one of our area sales leads, you've probably heard the word environment come up quite a bit. And what do we mean when we talk about environment and why starting with environment matters. So we're lucky enough to have Greg O'Rourke with us, um, along with Dan Emmert and Jake Grettencord. Um, Greg, I don't think the audience has seen you yet. So why don't you kind of introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and, and where you're at and what your role is and, and kind of why you're here at Advanced Agrolytics. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Grant. And thanks for having me. Yes, uh, my name is Greg O'Rourke. And my territory is over here in southeast Iowa. We have a lot of variability in our dirt, a lot of slope, not a lot of flat black. Um, I spent uh, the last 18 years in retail. And so I've been with Advanced Agrolytics uh, two years uh, this week. Yeah, Greg, I, I appreciate you jumping on. And, you know, one of the goals I think we're going to try to have on this podcast is just try to spread out our geographies, having different people on from different areas of our company. Um, if you're familiar with us at all, you know that we spread, we cover a lot of the Corn Belt. Dan, Greg, Jake, I'll kind of just open it up. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we as an industry have been focused on for a long time is soil type. And why do we, I, I guess, what is it about soil type that we've we've kind of become obsessed with as an industry? We use soil type and Sergo soil data for so much. Um, how would you guys define what how we're looking at soil type as the way the industry has constructed it? but also maybe explain some of the differences. We're going to talk about environment quite a bit, but I guess I'd kind of just open it up to you guys to say, what, what are some of the, how do we use soil type? So I guess industry standard precision ag for the past 20 years, you know, norm, normalized yield, yield maps. And then, Hey, we've got these, these soil maps that um, were put together in the fifties or the sixties with, um, you know, soil scientists doing the best good with the technology they had at the time. And you think about as mankind, we want to classify stuff. We want to, what's similar and what's not. And that's been going on ever since, you know, Adam was naming the animals. Right. But the, the way those are classified, they're looking at, at landscape position and, um, topography and organic matter and parent material and, uh, you know, where are the restrictions in those soils? How is, is water moving through that soil? How much water can those soil types hold? And that information is all very, very useful. And so as you think about, yeah, we, you know, we want to vary how much fertilizer we're putting on or how much 
seed were applied to those acres, soil type would be pretty good. But there's a problem with that as well, and that is that, you know, when they were mapping those, the level of precision of those zones that they were creating, you know, basically if, if there was an, an inclusion in that soil type less than like a, an acre or so, those weren't included in the map. And you think about the level of precision that we're trying to manage with today, it's, it's not good enough. And I think that, you know, we've got data showing that if you want to classify variability in the field using Sergo soil type, it's about 8% of the variability is uh, attributed to what that soil map is saying. So I don't know, Greg or, or Jake, uh, what your thoughts are around that. I think you said it right, Dan. I mean, as an industry in the past, that that's just what we have. That's what we've had to use with. And, and as, you know, my early years in retail, precision ag was kind of new. And so when we looked at a Sergo data and then we had soil samples with that and then our combines are collecting yield maps and we were starting to make some comparisons and, and the growers that I deal with today, they automatically tie their yield to the soil type. I think it plays a part, but in Southeast Iowa, we have so many different soil types and so many different landscapes within the same field. Now, I ask my growers, can we do better? Because yes, our equipment is capable of changing on the fly, and that is the definition of precision ag. But when we start looking at these yield maps, you know, I spent a great amount of time printing off yield maps, putting them in a binder, and I think the grower was just happy because he was able to collect them. And, and now, when I tie that to soil type, there's not a lot of correlation to it. There, there's some, but it's not a distinct line. So I asked the question again to them, can we do better? And, and we must do better. So in a timeline, yes, using soil type is what the industry has had, and that's what we had to work with. There's a better way out there, and I think Advanced Agrolytics knows it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I like to... To kind of go off of two analogies, right? Number one, Dan, Greg, Grant, how many times have you guys walked a field, you know, whether it's early early spring or late summer, and seen that definitive soil type line? My guess is pretty similar, right? I mean, you're not going to say, oh, yep, here's where this soil type ends, here's where this one starts, and yeah, that, that math is accurate, right? And, and the other, you know, other analogy I like to use is resolution, right? I mean, like we've talked about, industry standard, soil type, yield data to, to drive a recommendation. I like to think of that as just a regular old 1080p uh, TV. That was, you know, that was top notch. I was best in the industry. You know what? Five, less than that, probably seven to, to 10 years ago, everybody had a 1080 t, 1080p TV. Now we've moved to, to 4K to 8K. We're, we're looking on this still, on it. So we still have 1080. <laughs> well, yeah, regardless, but, but, but think of that picture quality out of that 1080 to, and, and I see this all the time, Grant, you probably do too, watching some, some old highlight clips of Purdue basketball or whatever your favorite sports team is, you know, go back 10 years ago. It's like, man, I didn't think the picture quality was that bad 10 years ago, but today, you know, I can pick up every little detail on that Jersey and 10 years ago, that was just kind of a blur. And, and I kind of correlate that back to the ag industry, right? Of, 
advanced analytics, the way we look at this, the, the, you know, soil typing and the soil attributes on this granular fine tuned level, we're, we're 16K, 8K, 4K, whatever you want to classify it as. We're, again, we're, we're a little bit ahead of the industry that way. But when we think of soil type, right, realistically, what are we thinking of? We're thinking of, is it poorly drained, well drained, you know, that, that sort of, those sort of attributes. And in a roundabout way, we're still kind of quantifying those just on a different nomenclature, right? We're still looking at how does water move across that acre, right? So when, when growers talk to me about soil type, realistically, what they're caring about is the texture of that soil. Is it a high OM? Is it low OM? Is it high CEC? Is it low CC? How much water does that hold? Well, we still quantify that just on a different different realm. I mean, Dan, how would you describe our proprietary SWI nitrogen loss, kind of the, our base layers? Yeah, and so let's let's start with that resolution analogy, right? Uh, uh, where Sergo data is on acre, acre and a half scale, we are are breaking that, and and within each acre, we've got like seventy. Uh, grid cells right and so uh, we are taking digital elevation models mapping the slope um the the direction of that slope and not just within that field boundary but you know in neighboring fields as well looking at how water is moving onto that field across the landscape and where is it moving to and as it moves there is it is it collecting? Is it, a, is it a basin? Is it a catchment area or not? And, you know, I think what I talk with growers about a lot of times is, okay, we get a two-inch rain. Does, is that whole field getting a uniform two inches of water? Or are there some places that maybe only a half inch of it is soaking in and other areas are getting, uh, you know, a lot of ponding and, and things from that two-inch rain? Because it's that across the landscape is not the same. You're telling me, Dan, that, that you know, you, you brought up a great point, right? And we hear it all the time of, well, my neighbor put, put a tile in or he put a riser or some wash cobs in. And now all of a sudden the field that I had that was drained really well, it doesn't drain very, it doesn't drain very well. Right. So one thing that you kind of brought up is that D infinity boundary of the way we look at a field. I mean, it, it will look at is water leaving your field or is it coming on onto your neighbors or is your neighbor's water coming on to you? Right. And, you know, think through how does that help us quantify the the at risk of that environment, right? I mean, how often, especially in our part of the world of you know southern Indiana, where you've got rolling hills and terraces, and and everybody's trying to to slow down this water, but ultimately it's got to go somewhere, either into a ditch or onto your neighbor's field at some point, and and that's kind of some way we can track that water too. Is is it are you getting neighbor your neighbor's water dumped onto you? As you think through that, our proprietary SWI, again, that's kind of the base layer we've all talked about. That's, that's water moving from and, and, and quantifying where it's moving to. Now let's think through that. How does that actually help a grower? I mean, what's, what's a grower care about that? Well, now we can look at, yep, water's leaving here and it's moving here. And oftentimes those are, you know, 100 feet apart. So within the same planting path often, right? So within the same planting patch, you have a dry acre and a wet acre. Well, what do you do to treat that? What do you, how do you manage that? Well, we can kind of get into the methodologies of, of you know, the at-risk acre and how that at-risk acre flips throughout, throughout the season. You know, 
I think we oftentimes ask, ask our producers of what's your at-risk acre? And, and they kind of, well, you know, and the good, good answer is it depends because it really does because, you know, April to May to early June, our at-risk acre is that wet acre. Wouldn't, wouldn't you guys agree? And then flip to, you know, July, August, traditionally that at-risk acre is now the dry acre. So you've got two different environments, two different at-risk acres, you know, regardless of the weather, a dry acre is a dry acre and a wet acre is a wet acre. But now let's think through that nitrogen loss equation too. Uh, if you can quantify where water's running too, what's our at risk? How how do we, you know, we know that's wet, right? I've got tile in my field. Uh, I'm doing the best of my management decisions to to help my my field get rid of water. So I've got tile. I shouldn't have a lot of a ponding acres now, but but how does tile kind of play into effect of our you know, nitrogen loss uh, map, our, our SWI map, you know, what are your guys' conversations with customers around that? I think it still kind of goes back to water. I mean, okay, so every time it rains, and we all have customers that we maybe talk to on a daily basis, weekly basis, text message, every time it rains and you talk to somebody, what's the first sentence out of either your mouth or their mouth? How much rain did you get? And if it was an inch, it's either... You're at that time of the year where an inch added too much because you've been getting rain or an inch saved your crop. That's the one statement, but we need to take it even further because that, you know, when we talk about how water's moving, water's always going to move the same way on that acre, no matter when we get it. The, the question needs that I ask my growers is, okay, so we know, A, we got rain on this particular field B we're tracking where it's moving to and where it's moving from. So if we can track that on an acre or a sub acre basis, should we be making different management decisions on that acre? And there's always kind of a little pause and then they get some thinking and then, yeah, that's how we're making sub acre management decisions that benefit the grower on each of their farm. And I think it, it and it comes back to what does that information about knowing where the water is and how much water tell us? Because it's not just the environment. It's how the environment interacts with all these different mechanisms. And, you know, this we don't want this to be a two-hour podcast, but think through how moisture impacts P and K movement. Think through how moisture impacts either in mineralization or in loss, as Jake mentioned. But then also of if we're saturated and we don't have oxygen in that soil, what is that doing to our roots? Are they, you know, they're definitely not growing very well if they don't have oxygen. And then, you know, even thinking about not just the plant that's growing, but the physical structure of that soil. If we've had that water again and again and again, and again we're going to have greater levels of compaction in those areas uh, that have been saturated for eons. Um, compared to that nominal acre that hasn't had all that saturation and the pore space filled by water and, and not. So, I mean, gosh, the, the layers that we have that are telling us about water movement give us so much information if we stop and actually think about what's going on. And yeah, yeah and I, go ahead. Yeah, point you made about tile, Dan. I mean, I, we, we, we've, over the years, we've spent a lot of money on tile and we've made a lot of great improvements, but one thing tile will never do, at least in the short term, 
is change though that that those compaction areas and we have to figure that in and one thing i heard the other day you guys talk about utilizing moisture and utilizing these rains what if we thought about it like this so every time a grower whether it's planting whether it's spraying whether it's um fungicide whether it's herbicide we count that as an application right and we want every application we make on our growers to count. We, we, we want it to be beneficial. But what if we viewed rainfall as, as an application? And what if every time it rains, we view that as an application? But we want to make sure that, Greg, like you said, you know, I, I, I always say it a lot too, you know, it rains on a Tuesday. What's everybody asking you on a Wednesday? How much rain did you get? Well, the gauge said we got an inch and a half. Well, that's great, but we know on that on that sand hill where water moves all the time, we know it does. What'd you get? Quarter inch, and in that low lying area, a hundred feet away from it, probably got three, maybe three and a half inches, just based on water moving to it. And we may say, hey, that soil caught the lottery. That that soil won the lottery. It's got the organic matter. It's got the CEC. It, get, it has water all the time. But how are we moving water away from that area? How long is it saturated? So, you know, the saying we say a lot, when Mother Nature calls, are you going to be ready to answer? And so when, 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 these, when this rainfall events do come, let's view that as an application and setting every acre up to produce, to capitalize with the nutrients and the concentration we have there. That's how, that's how we can set every acre up to win. Because let's, let's be honest. I mean, um, concentration does not equal availability. Is that, is that fair to say? Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Nutrient concentration in the soil, but if we don't have moisture for the roots to take it up, it's not going to get there. Yeah, but I mean, let's think through our customers, right? I mean, and, and we kind of talked about our customer base, you know, when we were talking with, with the founders, right? They're in it for money. I mean, <laughs> that's sustainable ag, right, it, it is raising money for the operation. I've got that clay knob. I've got that sand ridge. I've got that tough acre across my farm that it never produces year over year. Why would I keep putting inputs in it if it doesn't produce? You know, again, that sand ridge. Dan, how oftentimes do we drive across, you know, Knox County and we see that sand ridge burnt up or we, or we move south, uh, you know, towards Kentucky and we see that sand ridge burnt up? You know, me, put my grower hat on, if I'm in the combine and I'm, I'm seeing a 100 bushel yield swing there, that's telling me that this is a low productivity acre. I, I don't need to be dumping inputs on this. So, you know, how, how what's your conversation with those guys when they get to those acres? Well, I think it, it comes down to what is the yield limiting factor on these acres and when is that stress occurring? And then it gets down to, okay, well, what's it going to take to fix it? And on those acres, you know, a lot of them call them beach sand. It's like you go to, for those that aren't familiar, you go to the beach and you're trying to get uh, from the edge of the sand to the water and you left your flip-flops 
up by the boardwalk and that sand is burning your feet. It is like, extremely hot. That, that sand is just hot. And so I think, you know, our limiting factor is running out of moisture and our temperature. And well, how can we address that? And part of it is, well, hey, have we tried building a big plant early, front loading the nutrients that when we've actually got moisture still available, that we can take up that P, that K, that nitrogen, and actually build a plant and set it up to buffer against that stress of when it is 95, 100 degrees and closing that canopy so that instead of that sand being 135 degrees or 140 degrees in the afternoon, now it's only 90 or 95 and that plant is less stressed. You know, just thinking through those processes of, okay, when is the stress occurring? How is it occurring? And, and what can we actually do to buffer against it? That's where what we're trying to do, well, here's the environment, here's the mechanisms of what ha what's happening and how can we manage around it, right? And I'm sure, Greg, that's the, the extreme stress here in Southwest Indiana. What's the extreme stress where you're at? It's very, very, and I'll, I'll add to that. I mean, as, as an industry, again, um, soil type, elevation, poor dirt, you know, r riding in the combine, seeing the 100 bushel yield swings, you automatically as a farmer say, I'm going to put as little inputs into that acre as I can and cut my losses. And what they do, or what we have done is taken that money and put it, pumped it into the highly productive acre to try and crank out another 50 bushels. Coming to advanced agrolytics has really opened my eyes in that aspect because fertilizer, just like seed, has a threshold. When you get so much fertility built into the soil, there comes a point by adding to it, you don't see a return on your investment. So now it's going back to the exact opposite. We need to channel and funnel those nutrients to that at-risk acre, the, the dry acre, because building that plant early on, building plant mass, will sustain stress later on in that crop's life. And and by doing that, we have seen in the yield monitor, we're, we're never going to bring the yield even from a highly productive acre to a low productive acre, but we're going to bring it up close. And, and that is where we're going to see our return is focusing on these tough acres because in Southeast Iowa, we have a lot of them. We have a lot of variability. You're saying short of a D9 bulldozer and, and doing a million dollars worth of dirt work, a grower today can manage that at-risk acre to the best of their ability by understanding that nutrient availability, correct? I mean, it's kind of what we're recapping. But now mm -hmm. let's think through the rest of the growing season of the anomalies that we've caught, you know, two, three years in a row. Let's, let's think through that equation if we get that eight, nine, 10 inch rain in July, August that traditionally we don't get, but here lately we've getting, we're getting those. So you went from your dry acre with that risk to now you caught a 10 inch rain in, in August and now your wet acres at risk. Well, again, short of a D11 bulldozer, you're not going to change, you know, you inherited that map. You're not going to change that the elevation or, or water moving across the field to an extreme. I mean, it's all kind of relative. But now you've got a, now your at-risk acre is switched, you know, within a, a time span of 48 hours. So now, Greg, Dan, Grant, how do you manage that? I mean, how do you take Mother Nature into the equation, but also take her out of the equation as well? Yeah, we had had that exact instance happen this year. And so 
all of a sudden you, you flip and say, okay, we've got crop that's underwater briefly, and we'll just, for the sake of argument, assume that it is not long enough that it is, you know, 48 plus hours and we're completely killing it. But that water is staying saturated. The soil is staying saturated longer than that. And so, again, let's think through those processes. What is happening? We're in the middle of summer. Our nitrogen, our sulfur has been on that soils. Even if we've side-dressed, let's say it's been on for a month. And we've had saturated soil. What is happening in that soil to the plant and to the nitrogen? Well, we're out of oxygen. Um, so those microbes are pulling the oxygen off that nitrate. Maybe we're, we're losing it to the environment. Maybe it's leaching down. We've also got root death and it's going to be harder to take those nutrients up. So what, what do we need to do? Um, or how can we manage against that? How can we mitigate that risk? Thinking through the environment, we're knowing these acres are going to be saturated and at risk we can buffer our nitrogen protectant there so that, in, you know, instead of running a one X rate of uh, a nitrification inhibitor, we actually have data showing that as we increase that rate, staying within, within the label, but increasing that rate, we're protecting that nitrogen longer so that as that plant that's had good moisture early, we've built a good plant, we've got good yield potential. And now we're going into grain fill and we've had this big rain that could cause a lot of nitrate loss. We've buffered against that because we've protected our nitrogen fertilizer and we have a smaller portion of that in that we've applied in the nitrate form. So it's still in the ammonium form held on those soil cations and or, uh, cation exchange sites and it's less likely to be lost. So that's, that's one way that we buffer against that. Yeah, I, you know, I, again, I still put my farmer's cap on. I'm looking through the, the nitrogen use efficiency model. I'm, I'm looking through the cost per unit of nitrogen. I'm looking through the cost per acre of a stabilizer. You know, I feel like as a grower, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pre-plant. Uh, you know, I've got two by two on my planter, and then I come back, you know, 20, 30 days later, and I side dress. So I'm side dressing what I would call a later side dress, that V4, V, V4 to V6 time frame. you know, I'm in season. Do I, do I need to be running the stabilizer? You know, everybody I've talked to is telling me I'm in season and I don't need to run a stabilizer because that nitrogen is going to get taken up to the plant right away. But, but what you're kind of saying, Dan, and, and through our conversations is, Hey, that wet acre, we could get wet again, or that dry acre at a static rate, on that dry acre, you're going to be holding that nitrogen up too long, you know, with the static rate stabilizer, but then hundred feet away, like we talked about, you might not be holding it up long enough. So again, it kind of comes down to put mother nature into the equation, but also take her out of the equation. Right. I mean, is that kind of recapping what you're saying, Dan? Yeah. And, and, you know, the situation you described, that's a very good end management program, but we also have to be cognizant that over a third of our total nitrogen is, it's going to be taken up after that corn tassels. So yeah, we're putting it out there at, at V4, V5, just in time for the rapid growth phase and the big push towards pollination and the, and the crop really growing. But there's still a large portion of that nitrogen that's going to be taken from the soil after it tassels. So 
we we need to be thinking about managing it not just up and up into you know v6 or whatever but really season long in management because you think about where our yields have come the past couple years is big kernel depth and we want to make sure that we have nutrients available all season long to support that so dan and uh greg what would you guys say to and jake too what would you guys say um in an area where you where a guy tells you i don't i don't we have like three soil types in my area, so we don't have much variability. So I don't really know how how it would fit with what you guys are doing. How would you guys address that? Yeah, I hear it every day. <laughs> um, and, and, and to my rebuttal to that, right, is well, if you don't have a lot of variability, you're, I mean, you hit the lot of within that, right? That means you're pulling into a field and your yield monitor hits that first number of, call it 240, and it just stays at 240 across the entire field. I mean, that is really, really impressive because that's what you're telling me, Mr. Grower. You don't have variability. Well, now the conversation switches to, well, it, it, it goes from 240 to 280 down to, you know, 210. But it's still a relatively tight window. And my fields are flat. You know, I don't have a lot of variability. You still got a swing in the yield monitor there. That tells me you got variability somewhere, right? So then let's take a step deeper zoom a little bit further from the soil type map, start looking at how water functions across that field, bring in the, the knowledge that Dan's talking about, that mechanism of yield, understanding nutrient uptake per environment on a spatial level, and then start addressing that, right? And and I don't deal with it a whole lot anymore. You know, I grew up what I'd call north central Indiana. I grew up on the the south side of the north northern half of Indiana. Um flat black, you know, Benton County, you can, you know, see 10 miles if you got a clear day, right? But but the conversations I have then is, okay, Mr. Guerrero, I'm standing in your shop. Your shop is, is you know, concrete. It's relatively flat. I'm going to pour a gallon of water on your shop floor. Where's that going to go? Well, at somewhere, you've got a slight grade moving to a drain or it's going to move. It's going to funnel somewhere within your shop, right? Your field's the same way. It is it's almost impossible to see one tenth of an ele- elevation change to the naked eye. Your landscape also has that. Your field also has that. There is some sort of elevation change that will cause a variability. I mean, Greg, I know you're out in Iowa. Dan, you grew up similar to where I grew up. Same conversations, you think? What do you? What's your conversations there? So, I mean, yeah. So, it's funny around here. We we literally don't have all of our fields do variable, and guys know that. But I've, I've said that exact same thing. If if your fields have the, you know, only one or two soil types and and you claim that it's flat, you know, we've been collecting yield for 20 years. Show me a yield map that is one solid color that does not move. And and you won't. So or show me show me a yield map that matches up with your soil. Exactly. Maps, right. And they there, don't. There isn't one that does. And so there has to be an explanation for that, right? I mean, so you don't have variability. You don't have many soil types. If you get a six-inch rain, 15th of July, which acres are you most concerned about? And let that, let them, you know, they want to think about that. I want to think about that as a grower. Or at the 15th of July, we haven't had a, we haven't, you know, we've had a quarter inch of rain for two months. Which acres am I most concerned about at that point? And that describes the variability and understanding landscape within the field, like we're trying to do. And I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Greg. 
Nope, nope, that's all right. And I think one of the things I like to, just a thought exercise that I like to think about with myself, but also with the growers that I work with, is where is, if we look at the next five, 10 years, where is our next yield gain going to come from? And is there a magic bullet out there? Is there a magic product? Is there a magic philosophy? Is there something that's going to take our good ground? Greg, you talked about it, right? We tend, as an industry, to want to take that 80-acre farm, 60 acres of it can produce anywhere from 250 to 300 bushel corn. We know it because it's got the organics. It, 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 it has water running to it. It's got the CEC. We've been pouring our resource to that, but it's that 20 acres. Usually this is the way I think about it, that it's got the rolling ground. It's the tougher ground. It doesn't have the organic matter. It doesn't have the same soil structure that, that 60 acres does. So again, going back to my original question, where's our next yield gain going to come from? And I think we have at our disposal right now, we have those answers because if we take those 20 acres and we can add 10 bushel to that consistently, 12 bushel, I'm talking corn, beans, we add five bushel by managing those acres differently and by, and by fertilizing by landscape environment, by managing by landscape environment, we have, I think we have the answer, and that is reducing our variability across our acres. And I just don't think we've had the tools necessarily. And I, I like to just use the, you know, if the guys that made the Sergo soil maps 50, 60 years ago, if we were to tell them back then what we're using these maps for today with the technology that we do have, at our disposal, add all that into it, they'd probably laugh at you. They'd probably say, oh, surely not. Surely they're not using these maps to gain this much insight from and to spend the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that a lot of our growers are spending on these inputs using these maps. There's a new way forward. And I think by understanding our environment, by using our SWI layer, that we use to understand where water's moving from and where it's moving to and managing by landscape environment versus strictly soil type is the new way forward. Dan, you came from the seed industry. Maybe we, we, we table the conversation for a different episode, but you came from the seed industry. How often do we hear, well, this is a racehorse, this is a workhorse position, tough acre, you know, good acre, you know, when you think of that good acre and think of some of these hybrids out here that we would classify as a racehorse product, but somewhere in that field, let's just say it's less than 10% of that field is a tough, dry acre. You know, water's leaving leaving that acre. So now we've got a racehorse product that is built for, um, you know, built for consistency yield, but you're also 10% of that field. It's going on a dry acre that water's leaving. So how do you how do you work through that conversation? How do you prescribe to the environment there? Yeah, well, I mean that's you know you work in the seed industry. You've got your your product, your seed treatment, and your, your seed rate is is how you're managing around things. And I would be ecstatic if our 
raciest hybrid was placed in a field that only 10% of it was not ideally <laughs> suited for that. Yeah, that's right? pretty conservative, but yeah. 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 Um, so, you did, you know, we, you think about, okay, we know this acre is, let's say it's either going to drown out or it's not going to have the moisture to support late. And so, that's where you, you know, as a seed guy, you would try and pull back that seeding rate to help reduce the stress in that environment. But, you know, the things I've learned over the past year, it, you know, we can also bolster that with fertility, with, with nutrient timing and, and those types of things, which is not everybody. Well, very few people have a multi-hybrid plant. Um, so yeah, everybody knows there's variability out there. I, you know, another aside on that is, uh, would, I would coach my reps not to say, Hey, this is for your good ground because customer a, the part of the County he's in his good ground is going to be 280, 300 bushel corn. And customer B is in a different part of the County and his good ground is going to be 210 bushel corn, you know? So it's really thinking about it by what is it actually capable of producing because everybody's got different standards of good so i i think ultimately what we're trying to get to is that hey we you know we started with sergo maps and the information that is contained in those maps is great and the reason everybody wants to use them is because inherently we know moisture holding capacity water infiltration rates cecs organic matter all these different things are affecting how that crop grows and, and how nutrients are interacting with it. The problem with those maps is that they are nowhere near as accurate in, in the resolution that we need them to be in 2024. And so what we have done as a company is get a better evaluation of the landscape and where that water is flowing, how nutrients are interacting and really bringing it home on a sub acre basis so that it, each one of those environments has their greatest potential to succeed. Yeah, that's well said. Greg, appreciate you joining us. Any closing thoughts on your end, Greg? Nope. Thanks for having me. Um, like I said, uh, this was, you know, a big turnaround from what I've done in the past to what I'm doing now and just being able to look at it through a different lens uh, making some different management decisions for our growers to impact our yield outcome is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we, we heard that from the founders. We kind of heard that from, from us last episode. I think you could honestly interview any agronomist in anybody within our team or organization, and they're going to have the same remarks as, as Greg and Dan, right. Of what I was working with, I thought was, was, was the key once we came on board, once we learned the philosophy and, and, and the concepts of what we're doing here, it makes total sense. I mean, we, as an industry, we're almost doing a disservice uh, by looking at just those two data layers. There's a lot more that we need to be understanding. So appreciate the insights and, and the good conversations. Uh, let you close her down, Grant. Yeah. Obviously, if you're listening to this and you want to hear more or, or you have questions for us, you can interact with us on social media, on x.com, on Facebook, um, Instagram. Plus, you can visit our website at advancedagrolytics.com. And, yeah, we look forward to 
more episodes, more variety, um, more topics. And um, yeah, you can interact with us too. If you have a topic you want us to discuss, feel free to interact and reach out. But look forward to hearing from you and look forward to uh, our next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Acres of Insight podcast with Advanced Agrolytics. For more information, visit us at advancedagrolytics.com. 